0: So tonight's Bible reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to start at verse 2 um, through to verse 16. It's on page 930 of the Red Pew Bibles. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 2. I praise you for remembering me and everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ and the head of every woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman but everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God.
1: I was hoping to preach next week and let Matt preach this one. And uh, I, I see uh, it's very uh, appreciative of uh, Deb up here with her hair up appropriately, so it was not seductive. Uh, Annie, on the other hand, and Sarah and Georgia with their hair out without any covering. It's messy, isn't it? Let me say uh, up front that... that This is not an easy text to understand and then to apply to today in today's uh, world. If you read uh, commentators and writers, there's much ink has been spilled trying to explain the meaning of the text, what does it mean, what doesn't it mean, and very gifted people have some different understandings of some of the words, what Paul is seeking to get to. It's one of those times that I wish Paul was a little bit clearer under God. Sometimes I say to God, God, could you have just made the Apostle Paul a little bit clearer here? It is difficult to apply in different cultural situations. Clearly, no one is wearing a head covering here, I don't think. So clearly, that's not an issue for us. And that's important to know as we look at the text to try and see what it means and what it doesn't mean. Although, you could go a few kilometres from here and find women gathering in a Christian church today and all of them would have a head covering, a scarf or a veil of some form. And he was telling me, uh, come on, while we're here, come up here for a sec. Oh. Yeah, with your hair out, it's okay. <laughs> you were at another church and what could you could not do? Oh. Just that, what could you?
0: I was not able to go up and take communion because I didn't have a head covering and I saw girls pass along their scarves to each other to be able
1: to go up. Okay, and music playing, you were saying you needed to be
0: covered to play. Certainly not to lead, but if you're going to play. So you weren't allowed to
1: lead? No. No. But you, thanks for that. Thanks. (laughs) Sorry, I didn't warn her of that, but she was filling me in. And uh, I I had asked to see some uh, coverings. And we have photographs of churches. So what I'm saying, for some places, they are still uh, covering their heads in obedience, what they believe in obedience to this text. And clearly, for most Western churches, that's not, not an issue. But what is happening, we're trying to work out what's happening in Corinth. And uh, and by the way, if you're visiting today, we're in the middle of teaching through the Bible. And sometimes you get to some complicated things in the Bible. But we're not going to run away from that. We'll try and deal with it and see what it's saying. But clearly, something was happening. There were some women in the Corinthian church, by not wearing a head covering or a scarf over their hair, as they prayed or prophesied, interesting, they could pray and prophesy, that's important. They were up the front, they were allowed to, unlike some, say, Arabic churches today. They were able to do that, but by not wearing the head covered, covering, they were dishonoring both God and their husbands and creating disunity in the public worship. Ben Witherington III is a scholar. He says, it is possible and likely in light of chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, that some in Corinth thought that through knowledge or other spiritual gifts, and experiences, they transcended distinctions of gender in Christian worship. If you look at chapter 5, uh, Corinthians were pretty messy, in chapter 5, they were celebrating an incestuous relationship and Paul said, should you not have removed that person from the church, you were celebrating this. In chapter 7, uh, now that they've been converted, some thought they were beyond uh, the bodily expression of sexuality, they didn't need to have sex any longer. And Paul says, no, no, gosh, remember a few weeks ago, you're meant to husbands and wives to have sex together. Also, some of the women who become Christians, who had non-Christian husbands, now saying, well, now that we're Christians, we don't need our husbands, can we divorce them? And Paul says, no, no, don't divorce them, stay married. And then here, we've got some other uh, removal of the head covering, which was normal. Let's have a look at that. Paul says at the beginning, Verse 2, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I passed them on to you. So they probably said to Paul, hey, Paul, yeah, yeah, thank you for leading us and helping us to run the church properly. We're doing the right thing. Women can pray and prophesy with their hairs, hair, hair, heads covered. But it, it seems that there are some liberated women who have, come, have this whole new ideas and they've gone against the rest of the church. Paul is pleased that the Corinthians uh, are following his previous instructions, consulting him. But in preparation to answer the issue about the head covering, he gives a general principle. Let me read it to you. It says, but I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Okay, what's Paul getting at? A, couple, a question, firstly, about what does head mean, the head of that. Some scholars think it's a metaphorical use. It means like the source, like the head of a river. The head of the river, the source of the river. So they'd like to translate this verse, the source of every man is Christ." The source of the woman is man, the source of Christ is God. Because that eliminates any whole idea of leadership structure or headship submission principles in the family, so they throw the word source in. But let me suggest to you that that has difficulties. To be consistent, we end up with a Christ who was created then eternally begotten of the Father. The source of Christ is God. We've got uh, every man made from Christ in the same way that woman was made from man. Because he's going to pick up Genesis 2, where the woman is taken from man's side. Many scholars think that's the best way to understand it. But the truth is that head, or kephali, which is the Greek word, often speaks of authority and leadership. Humble leadership, sacrificial leadership. We see that in uh, Ephesians 4.15. Christ is the head of the church. He's not simply the source of the church. He is the leader of the church. He is head over the church. It includes authority and leadership. It says the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And wives are called to submit to their husbands. Pastor Dave was speaking this morning from Titus. It says women should be subject to their husbands, submissive to their husbands. So that principle is right throughout. Now we won't try and get away from it and see what it means and how you understand it. But it's everywhere in your New Testament. But we're talking about sacrificial leadership and servanthood. Not control, not ordering people around, but loving others. Now, some other scholars uh, argue for the head as the, a sense of prominence or representative character, first in rank. So um, it's not really source, it's not authority and leadership, but it's just saying they're first in rank. The other question is, uh, we're talking about man and woman, should it be husband and wife? What you need to realize is that in the Greek, it means man and woman, it can mean husband and wife depending on the context. So if you picked up the ESV version of the Bible or the new RSV, they don't have man and woman, it'll have the concept of husband and wife in there. So even that's different, you think, hold on, two different Bibles, one's using man and woman, one's using husband and wife. They pick up that theme because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is head of the church And women were more likely to embarrass their husbands, not necessarily any man, by simply not wearing a head covering. So it's working out how you embarrass or insult your husband in that context. I also think that in verses 7 to 16, it seems to be about women and men generally rather than husbands and wives. But I think we keep both in mind as you look at that. So what's he getting at in that point? I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Jesus Christ, let's go to Jesus for a moment, voluntarily submitted to his father, his head, it says, in purchasing our salvation. Jesus voluntarily submitted to the authority of God, his father, and Paul is urging other believers to imitate that voluntary submission. Headship does not have to be harsh, for God is head of the Christ. He's not harsh towards him. He loves him. He is one with him. And that to be under the headship of another does not have to be demeaning, for Christ is under the headship of God. Jesus willingly submits to his Father's will while being equal to his Father in the Spirit. Jesus is God, and yet he submits to God the Father in purchasing our salvation. John Calvin puts it this way. Yet inasmuch as he became a mediator in order to bring us near God, his Father... He set beneath, not in that divine essence, he hasn't lowered his divine essence, which resides in him in all fullness and in which he does not differ from his father at all, but as to making himself our brother. Jesus submitted to the father, he said, in order that we would would become his brothers and his sisters. So in each of these three couplets, Christ-man, man-woman, God-Christ, assumes a gospel-orientated submission to the corresponding head or authority. Christ, man, every man or woman, submits to Jesus Christ as Lord. We do that. Husband, wife, woman. It's much easier husband and wife than man and, wo- and, and woman, but often a wife's voluntary submission displays the beauty of the gospel to her husband. God Christ, Jesus' submission to the Father's will, makes the gospel possible. Paul is trying to set this agenda to say, submission, that's normal, it's good, it doesn't demean you, doesn't put you under anyone, Um, Jesus is equal with his Father, but that's how God has established things. Then it gets to the problem. Let's have a look at verses 4 to 6. He applies that gospel directly to the deportment and adornment of these women in gathered worship, especially in prayer and prophecy. It doesn't say... You should always wear it. But it's talking about when they are praying and prophesying. It's interesting. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. We'll come to that in a moment. But if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. He firstly addresses men, but this doesn't seem to be the main issue in this passage. It says, if a man prays or prophesies in the assembly with a hair covering or head covering, he dishonours his head, that is Christ's. You see, such head coverings were common by men in pagan worship as a display of social status, bringing honour to themselves. Against the backdrop of an honour-shame culture, Paul states that such an act dishonours Christ. Men, don't wear a head covering. But then the women worshipping at Corinth. It seems that, uh, as you read some of the history, that Greek women in the general society were expected to wear a veil or a shawl over their heads as some sort of covering on their head when appearing in public as a sign of their status as a married woman. So you're walking around the streets. When you get married, you put it on. It's a symbol. Everyone knows you're married. You're off. You know, you're off the market and one says you can't. They don't want strange people talking to you. They normally covered all or part of their hair in that period of time. If a man appeared, listen to this, if a man appeared in public with an unveiled woman, it would suggest that she was not his wife, but was probably a prostitute. In Corinth, in, the, in that situation, it was quite common, men would have their wives for family, and they would have other women for, for sex and other things. So if he's wandering around and the, the woman does not have a head covering, she's a prostitute. At pagan banquets, an unveiled woman would be a man's social and sexual companion for the night. Some of the background why he says this. If a woman prays or prophesies in the worship assembly without a head covering, he says, she dishonours her head, that is, her man or her husband here. In a woman's case, the head covering mostly refers to her shawl. It's, like, it's not like the Muslim... Uh, uh, covering which covers your face and your eyes. It's normally just over the hair in that period of time. But sh- what is really going on? Shriner 1 commentator, says this, if women do not wear head coverings, again, we're just talking about the first century, not today, their failure to be adorned properly would be shameful because they would be dressing like men. No distinctions between women and men. A woman's failure to wear a head covering is analogous to her having her hair cut short or shaved. Every woman in the culture of that day would have been ashamed of appearing in public with her head shaved or her hair cut short because then she would have looked like a man. So you wouldn't do that. Well, if you're not going to wear the covering, shave it all off. Be like a real man then if you don't want to wear it. Morning Principle, the Reverend Dr. Tim McBride, writes. I told him he's getting a quote today. The precise significance of a shaven head is debated. Is it a disgrace? Is it a sign of prostitution, lesbianism? Is it a sign of mourning? But abnormality and probably masculinity seem to be involved. The women seem to be overthrowing any convention and claiming a freedom which denies feminine identity. Uh, Champer and Rosner also writing in this area, they say, A move toward the abandonment of the female head covering would have struck many at that time as a move toward a more licentious, a more sexually provocative way of appearing in public, precisely the kind of social influence Paul is anxious to avoid. One writer puts it this way, I hope I don't get in trouble for this, it likens it to a modern husband watching his wife lead worship while wearing a dress that is too tight and too low cut. It becomes embarrassing to them. Thirdly, having a look at that, let's have a look at the next statement because it even gets more complicated. The image and glory of God in head coverings. It says, a man ought to not cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Thanks, Paul. What does this mean? Keep in mind Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. Don't jump to conclusions. Think of Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. God directly in chapter 2 well, let's say in chapter one, God says he creates man and uh, he creates man and, man and woman, right? In chapter two, God directs, directly creates the man whose existence is, is then God's glory. It shows the excellence of God, but creates the woman through the man so that she is man's glory as well as God's. Man first, from man, woman. That's how we seem to be using the language. So there's probably also associated the idea that a woman reflects the glory of her husband, particularly if she displays her femininity through uncovered hair. And rather than it shouldn't be bringing glory to a husband, but really glory to God in the assembly. So it says don't, if you don't wear it, you're bringing glory to, you, to your husband, not to God. This is not at all denying that both men and women were created in the image of God and of equal dignity and value. Paul knows that, he knows Genesis chapter 1. He's not saying that because he knows in Genesis chapter 1 we're all created in God's image. But woman is the glory of man only in the sense that she was taken out of him because she was made for him. Both her origin origin and her purpose, the woman corresponds to the man. Then he says, for man did not come from woman, but woman from man, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. He now takes you to Genesis 2, especially to the order of events. The verse may simply support the idea of reflection of glory. Who gets the glory? Paul may also be implying that behavior which obliterates the distinction between the sexes contradicts the complementarity, which is God's creation purpose. Males and females are complementary beings. But note this. Bailey knows that in Genesis, because the man could not manage alone, a woman was created as a helper, or the, the Hebrew word is Ezra, as a helper. But you see, that word is also describes what God is like. God comes to his people as a Ezra, as a helper. So it doesn't speak about someone simply just looking after your needs, but someone who comes in power to help and to save and to contribute to your life positively. And just in case the men in Corinth and the men at Naui read verses 7 to 9 and get a rush of blood to their head, Paul brings them back down to earth with an equally important reality in verse 11 and 12. Nevertheless, having said all these things to try to complicate it a little bit or help us to understand, he says, nevertheless, in the Lord woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. There's a healthy balance. You come together, God has created you both, you're interdependent, build a loving relationship together. There is no sense that men are better than women because neither is independent of each other. Not only are they both made in the image of God, they both need each other. Woman may have been created as a helper suitable for man, but without her, man cannot fill the earth and subdue it. Man and woman need each other as partners. Then, let me take you back to verse 10. Another interesting line. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her head because of the angels. Now, it brings in the angels, right? Just in case you weren't uh, confused already. Now, traditionally, interpreters understood verse 10. A woman ought to have an authority over her head. Talking about a sign of her husband's authority over his wife. But it may mean, and more likely to mean, I think that the covering is a sign of authority that the wife has, that she's allowed to pray and allowed to prophesy in that gathering. Wear it on your head. And this is because of the angels. What's this angel bit? Well, the Bible says in a few places in Jewish ideas that the angels are worship, watching our worship. So even as we gather, the angels are watching us. Are we sincere? Are we bringing glory to God? So it says, just do the right thing. Even the angels are watching you. And then he goes uh talk about the nature of things. Having given deep theology, he supplements his preceding argument with an appeal to their own sense of propriety. Judge for yourselves, he says. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Oh, we would say yes, right? We do it every day. <laughs> but for him, in that first century church, remember the context, you've got to understand who he's writing to and why. He expects a negative uh, response to his question on the basis of what he's argued already. Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? Just looking around at the heads. In the past, in that period of time, obviously having long hair, they saw it as unnatural. And, um, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering, at this point in Paul's argument, we think, hold on, the hair's the covering, so she doesn't need another covering. Paul, does she need a, a scarf, or is her hair enough? Well, it's clearly made a, a strong point that you need a head covering, so he can't be overturning what he's just told us, right? F. Watson writes in his book, the point is that women's long hair, as opposed to men's short hair, is analogous to the additional covering represented by the veil. In seeking to impose this extra covering on women, but not on men, Paul is following the example of nature itself, which has similarly seen fit to provide women with an extra covering. Saying, well, you've got the long hair, it's a covering, so put, put the cover on, he says. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Done. It's how we do it here, the first century. Let me summarise the conclusion of what I think he's getting at in three main points, and then give some practical applications for today. And tell you where you can buy your scarves. No, no. <laughs> Not going there, trust me. In summary, Paul is saying that the deliberate overthrow of convention by these women is unjustified. It is unhelpfully provocative behaviour, out of line with both Christian and Hellenistic norms, but most importantly, it implies an overthrow of all gender distinction, which is contrary to God's intention in creation as revealed in Genesis 2. Schiamp and Rosner put it this way. Despite its obscurities, Paul's teaching in this passage clearly affirms three things. If you can pick up these three things, I'm happy. Because I'm still trying to work out some bits. A respect for a creation mandate to maintain and even celebrate the gender distinctions with which we have been created. We are men and women complementary beings. If some society says, no, there's no difference, and I think part of that happens with these multiple gender identities, there's multiple confusion, right? God is saying, male, female. A respect for culturally specific approaches to guarding moral and sexual purity. Modest and appropriate dress for us. It's not going to be head coverings for us, but moderate and appropriate dress. Thirdly, a commitment to fully integrating women and their gifts into the experience of the worshipping community. They pray, they prophesy, whatever prophecy may mean. Some practical applications today. Well, The first thing is that head coverings in a church like this send virtually no sexual or religious messages in contemporary Western society. A wife or a woman can honor her husband, her head, and pray and prophesy in the assembly without needing to wear a head covering. In that first century in Corinth, it was a cultural matter. For us today, no one gets offended, no one gets upset when you don't wear it. But the tradition of wearing hats in church, and you have an example of a head covering there, has its tradition in this text. We can uphold the principle without the symbol. You go back 30, 40 years, women will come to church in hats. Why? Because of these texts. Symbolic of submission. Someone would say, if we don't follow, put on the headscarf, why do we listen to any of it? Right? Because the principle is still true, even though the expression of it is no longer culturally appropriate. Let me give you another example and see where this ends up. The Bible says then when we gather, we should greet one another with a holy kiss. Because it indicates brother-sisterly relationships. But we don't. So if you would like to start now kissing one another, are you okay with that? Sort of? No, you're not so much interested? Brotherly-sisterly, one on either side, the cheeks. Are we going there? No. Because in that period of time, and let me say, not just in that period of time, if you go to some Greek functions or uh, Arabic functions or others, as they come to church, they greet one another with a holy kiss. But in our context, we're lucky to even get a handshake, or even a nod. Hi, mate. Nice to see you. And we're still brothers and sisters, right? And so it's all a bit different. Or, you know, when you're younger, high five. Give me a high five to a one-year-old the other day in church. That was... We use different ways to express the fact that we are family and brothers and sisters in Christ. Same principle, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We acknowledge each other, love each other, but we don't need the kiss to do it. That was culturally appropriate. As I said, in some Middle Eastern countries, the head covering, a veil or a shawl, is still worn by women in Christian churches, but not simply overseas, but in Australia as well, a number of churches. I was just Googling a couple of Arabic churches... Um, and you have photographs on their website as they're in worship, and women have their head covered. Whether they all do it or not, I'm not sure, uh, but most of them seem to have their head covered. In their culture, if it works, that's fine. Christian workers, let's go, uh, Christian workers in Muslim lands will often consider wearing a veil or a shawl while in public if it will promote their witness. So, evangelistically, if you work in certain communities, or even if you start to reach uh, Muslim uh, women in our society, head out of the camp, start ministry to Muslim women, you may wear your head covering as well as an example of submission. I read that for Muslims, bare-shouldered women are seen as sexually promiscuous, and the practice is almost tantamount to bare-breasted women in this country. I was just uh, about to go to a Greek monastery uh, later this year, God willing, and I was reading the instruction what you have to wear, what women, even in a Greek Orthodox thing, and women have to wear long skirts, for example, and you have to wear certain tops to indicate your reverence for the place in which you are going to. And we just make adjustments, whatever. Hairstyles are seen as morally neutral these days, aren't they? I remember since the 1960s, have you seen any movies of people in the sixties? There's hair down everywhere, and uh, hi- the hippie generation. And then we go short again, and we go long again, and we're all short at the moment, guys, aren't we? You got the odd. I've got a friend's got hair down almost to his uh, toes, but he's an exception. So for us, the hairstyle's not important. I was going to, as I said, mention Deb had lovely, had her hair up, respectable. <laughs> In that, if you would have passed, okay, probably in that first century, throw a scarf on top. But for us, the hairstyle's not that much of a problem. But, let me suggest, if you have a hairstyle that seeks to eliminate gender distinction, it's probably not helpful. If you intentionally get a haircut if you're a woman, to look like a man, and there are plenty of people like that, especially in gay relationships, then I think it goes against the principle that we have here. We also need to be careful if our dress or hairstyle communicates misleading sexual signs. Men should not be dressing or wearing dresses, not in our city anyway, since this suggests transvestite behaviour to most onlookers. There are a couple of people I I see at Percival Shopping Centre quite a bit, in a dress, walking around, looking a little bit lost. Women should not wear excessive makeup and revealing clothing typical of prostitutes on their beach, for example. Less dramatically, um, both men and women should avoid any clothing that would prove unnecessarily seductive, particularly in settings where God is to be worshipped. And therefore, we always encourage you to be modest in your dress, what you wear on top and your pants and so on. We don't want to be distracting anyone from the worship of God. Sixthly, husbands and wives should guard against sending signals that suggest that they are not married or are disloyal to their spouses in the gathering. Not wearing a wedding ring. Now, some of you don't wear wedding rings because you're carpenters and builders and you'll pull off your finger if you, if you wear a wedding ring. I understand. But if some people intentionally take it off so they, they have opportunity to engage in a moral conversation with others. I'm not saying in the church, but at least outside of the church. We're not to speak. I'm not to speak to other women in such a way as give the impression that I'm flirting or building an inappropriate relationship with another woman. And likewise, that works with men and women here. And seventhly, there's a clear support of women being active participants in our worship services. We've got someone singing and leading in worship. We've got someone playing guitar. Uh, we have someone praying involved in different aspects it says at least praying and prophesying which 1 Corinthians talks about and prophesying is speaking God's word to some levels normally an inspired word from God for the encouragement of the congregation seven principles that we might be able to apply this somewhat difficult text to us today and I finish with this simple prayer may God grant us wisdom as we seek his word and to obey him Today, let me pray. Lord God, uh, we thank you that you speak through all of your Word for the good of your people, for our growth, for our maturity. And Lord, we confess that at times we're not sure exactly how to understand various expressions. Trying to put ourselves into the first-century church in Corinth. Well, Lord, we thank you. That there's sufficient truth in it that we can understand. And apply to our lives today. Help us to go to your word, to study it, to read, to pray upon it, to research, that we would know your word better. But most importantly, God, help us to work together as men and women, husbands and wives, to worship in such a way as that you are glorified and honoured. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.